All right, yeah. What an amazing, amazing event and an amazing summer. And Revolution, I am so proud of you and I am so glad to be back. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really has been an amazing summer, um, not only in the life of the church, but in my life and the life of my family as well. If you're new today, um, I have not been here for the last 10 weeks, and that might not be a big deal to you, but typically during the summer, I take a preaching break. But this summer, I took a 10-week sabbatical, which is what pastors do kind of in ministry as a way to not just rest, to kind of take a break from the rhythms of life, but also refill, because you know those are two different things. Resting is like turning the engine off in your car, but refilling is like putting more gas into it as my mentor actually told me this week. And so it's an opportunity, it was an opportunity for me to take a break and also do some very strategic things in my life to work on myself, to work on my family. And, and Lindsay and I met with a life coach and worked on a plan for that, work on my leadership. And so it was a very, very great and beneficial time. But I wanna say a couple things before we jump into the message today. First, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you to our board, thank you to our staff, thank you to all of our team members that served, and then thank you as the church. Um, I am well aware of the fact that not everybody gets to do this, and it was a privilege and an honor for me to be able to take a break, to be able to work on myself, my life, my leadership, and I just want you to know how incredibly grateful I am for you that not only did you allow me to do that, but you continue doing the work of ministry. And that to me is probably the coolest part about it. I actually have some friends uh, in ministry all over the world. Believe it or not, I have friends. Can you believe that? Uh, it was kind of funny in my head when I said I actually have some friends. Um, but I have some friends in ministry that are actually scared to take a sabbatical, scared to be gone that long because they're afraid that things might fall apart, that there might be a mutiny, right? And kind of an uprising, which never happens in church, right? Um, but not only did that not happen, I was never worried about that happening because we have such a great board. We have such a great team. We have such a great church. And the ministry of our church continued. The ministry of our church went on week after week and our staff did amazing job. Those of our staff that taught did an amazing job. Then we, yeah, let's give it up for them. And then I'm so glad that you got to hear from four of our different church planners, literally from around the world, the great country of Scotland, the great country of Texas, to here locally in Georgia as well. Um, I'm so glad that you got to hear from them because you know we talk to them often and have been supporting them for a while, but you may not always get to see them or know them. And so I'm so grateful for them that they got to come and I'm glad that you got to hear from them just to kind of open your mind up to what God is doing through our church literally all over the world. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. Thank you for staying connected, for doing what we asked you to do, for praying for me, praying for our church staying involved in the life of the church, serving, giving, attending, showing up. Um, every guest speaker we had told me, man, the church is amazing. I'm like, I know that. I'm glad you got to see it too. Um, 
But again, I just have a heartfelt gratitude for you because being able to take a break and focus on just some things in my life, and, and we'll talk more about this. In fact, if you listen to our podcast, Pastor Dave and I are recording that this week. It'll drop this week, and I'll talk more about the sabbatical, kind of go into some details. And then as we go throughout this series over the next several weeks, I'll share some things as well. So make sure you're back, because I really feel like God did some work in my own heart and soul, and I know that that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have a chance to actually be away, not have to worry about the church, not have to worry about other responsibilities and just allow the Lord some time in my own life to work on my own soul. So thank you. I do feel like a different guy in a lot of ways. I feel like I learned some stuff that I didn't know. Stuff that my wife knew, but I didn't know. You know how it is, right? Someone else has to tell you something. It's like when our students go away to mission camp and they're like, this guy said this and it was amazing. We're like, bro, we've been telling you about that every Wednesday, right? But it really was an amazing, an amazing time. And before, again, we pray and get into the message, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for being such an amazing church. Let's pray. Father, I said thank you now many times, but the thing that we are the most thankful for as we're gonna get into the message today, God, is you. We are the most thankful for Jesus because God, no one, no one deserves the grace and mercy that we've been given in him. And so God, we thank you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the people that make up this family that we call our family. And God, what you've done in these months through the life and ministry of this local church. But God, we know it's all because of you and it's all for you. It's all empowered by you and it's all going back to you. And so God, we thank you for that. And as we open up your word today, God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would, through your word, communicate clearly to us what I believe is such a very timely and important principle for us to get because you've saved us and you've made us and now you are calling to be good stewards of what you have saved us for. So God, we thank you for this opportunity. Pray that you'll open our ears and our eyes to see and to hear, to know the truth that are in these words, God, and then help me as always to communicate it in a way that honors you and is helpful to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Probably the best thing I could say is if you got a Bible, open it. All right. We have finished up preaching through the gospel of John. In fact, I preached the last message on May 21st. And if you weren't here, we did about two and a half years in the gospel, according to John. And I was going to joke and say, we're going to come out here today and like open it up to John chapter one. All right. Not gonna do that, although I will reference it though. I will reference it because it fits into this text. Now, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Now, if you don't know where that is, it's right after the Gospels, all right? And so it should be pretty easy to find. But in Acts chapter 20, the primary verse that we're going to look at today is verse 28. So Acts 20, 28. We're going to back up into verse 17 and read verses 17 through 27 before we get to verse 28 to kind of understand the context of it. But Acts 20, 28 
is what now I consider to be my life verse. And so as I was thinking about what to preach on when I got back and haven't preached in 10 weeks, um, we laid out a series kind of before I left that I'll explain in just a second, but I knew I wanted to teach on this verse. I knew I wanted to teach on this verse, one, because of what it means to me, but two, because of the principle that is found in it. And the principle that is found in this verse is really the principle for this entire series that we're going to do. So today we're going to kick off what's probably going to be about a five-week series now until uh, Labor Day weekend on this concept that we are calling sacred stewardship. Sacred stewardship. And it's a principle that you're going to see here in Acts chapter 20. But before we get into the text, let me define these two words for you. If you've been around our church or maybe you've come in the last few weeks and you haven't heard me teach, I love digging into words. I love understanding words and partly because I speak words as we all do, right? But that's part of my job. It's part of what I'm called to do. In fact, I was having a conversation with my son a few weeks ago and talking about the sabbatical and he goes, he said, dad, when are you going to go back to being employed again? And I said, well, son, I've been employed this whole time. Like, I'm still employed. I mean, I'm not unemployed, all right? I'm still employed. He's like, no, 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 I don't know. But when are you going to go back to, to, to working? When are you going to go back to preaching? And I said, well, let's talk about that. That's a different thing than employment. Thank God I'm still employed, at least as far as I know, I'm still employed. No one had told me that I wasn't employed. But when it comes to words, that's part of my employment, right? Part of my employment is Not to just tell you words, but to tell you the words of God. So my job and and the communicator's job, the pastors, those that preach and teach us, our job is to tell you this word. Well, I just think it's important if I'm going to tell you these words that we understand these words, all right? So these two words, sacred stewardship, I'm going to define them for you, but we're going to do it backwards. In fact, you're going to see that quite a bit today kind of starting from the back and going to the front. So first, I want to define the word stewardship. Stewardship. And I've got this here on the screen. It is the Greek word oikonomia. Oikonomia, which I have in parentheses there. It may sound like an English word because this is where we get our English word economy. So the Greek word stewardship, oikonomia, is where we get our English word economy. Now it comes from the combination of two Greek words, oikos, which means house, and nomos, which means law. So literally the word stewardship means house laws or household management. Household management. Because, you know, anytime you're bringing words over from another language, you can take them very literally, but they may not make sense. You're like, what in the world? Stewardship means house laws? Yeah, that's a different thing than in-laws and outlaws and all that kind of stuff, right? House laws or the concept of stewardship, the best way I think we can think about it is the word in English, economy, right? We're having a lot of conversations in our world today about the economy. Is the economy headed for a recession? Which for $19.99 a month, I can tell you about that, all right? 
You can subscribe to that later, all right? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The Lord has told me, all right? That's a joke, all right? I'm not selling you anything. But we're all speculating, right? We're all speculating. Are we headed for a recession? Are we not headed for a recession? We've had all kinds of conversations over the economy. One, because a little over three years ago, we shut down the economy, not just our economy, but the world economy. And then we thought it was a great idea to print $7 trillion worth of money and hand it out, right? Which has effects. It has effects. One of them has been called inflation. People are like, how did we get inflation? Well, because we inflated. That's how. When you print that much money, you can't sit back and think nothing's gonna happen. Of course it's gonna happen. Which, I don't know if you think about this much politically, and this isn't a political sermon, I'm just kind of using it as an illustration. But no, no matter your political persuasion, I think we all could agree that our politicians right now are not very good stewards of the economy, right? That's stewardship. You are managing something. And I think one of the reasons is because I think politicians have forgotten a very important fact, that the economy or the house isn't theirs. It's not theirs. It's someone else's. Now, according to our constitution, which I personally think is the second greatest document that's ever been written, the first one is this one. But the first three words of the Declaration of Independence is we the what? People. So the house belongs to the people and we have politicians that serve as our representatives. That's why they're called the House of Representatives. They are representing us and they are there to represent it underneath the rules of the house. That's called stewardship. Now this economy, this idea that we get in our own life comes from somewhere else. In fact, our founding documents are based upon the rights that have been bestowed upon us by our creator. That's what makes the founding documents of America so utterly unique in human history. There were no other documents like it because it understood something. There was a power that was higher than a king or a queen. Now, democracy is a great way to run a government. But where we fail in our life, biblically to understand that when it comes to the world, or let me say it like this, the kingdom of God, it's not a democracy. It's what's called a theocracy. God owns the house. God owns the house. In fact, Psalms 24 says that the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Genesis 1 and 2 our founding documents, in the beginning, God, God created. So God owns the house. Now there's two ways kind of biblically to think about the house. One is creation. But interestingly enough, Paul, Peter, others in the New Testament pick up on this idea and they actually call us 
the house. You and I are the spiritual house that God is building, which is why a lot of people call the church the house of God. But we have to understand the house of God, though, is not this building. There's nothing wrong with buildings, just like there's nothing wrong with you owning a home. But your house is not the family. It houses the family, right? The building or the house is there for the sake of the family. Same is true in church. The buildings are here for the sake of the house, the family, the family of God, the people. So we are the house. But when it comes to this principle of stewardship, here's what we need to understand. The house, us, doesn't belong to us. He's the owner. We are the steward. We are the steward. And how do we steward? Well, the definition of stewardship, right, economy, is house laws. So here's what I need us to understand. When it comes to stewardship, just like it does in our government, we have to understand something. We are not the owners of our own house. We are stewards of it. We are representatives. Someone else owns it. Just like our government is owned by the people. It's by the people, for the people. This house, us, the church, the family of God is owned by God. We're not owners, we're stewards, which is why it gets to the second word, sacred. So let me give you the definition of this. It comes from the Greek word, heros, which means holy or set apart for God, consecrated, devoted to the service of God. This word here, heros, is the foundation of our English word, hierarchy. In fact, the first four letters spelled the same, H-I-E-R. And the word hierarchy, and I've talked about this before, is two Greek words, this one and another Greek word, arche, which arche means first or ruler. So when we're talking about a hierarchy, right, you put these two words together, you have an arche, which is first, but that arche is, a, is holy, which means that ruler or the one that is first is set apart for God. So when we're talking about a hierarchy, what we're saying is there's not only someone who's first and then someone who's second, but that one who's first is set apart for God. It's holy. See, this is the principle of firsts. This is where we get the principle of tithing from. It's first. It's not just 10%. You need to understand that. It's the first 10. Because there's a hierarchy when it comes to our finances. Now, this isn't a series on finances. I'm just using this as an example. It's not just part of the 100, the 10, like, okay, I'm going to take in between, I'm going to take the 10 in between 30 and 40, which means I'm going to pay 30% of other things and then I'll do the 10. No, no, no. It's not just the 10. There's a hierarchy. There's a first. And here's what you need to know. The Bible says that is holy, set apart for God. Now let's put these two words together. Sacred stewardship. So stewardship is the household management. It's the responsible management. But I need you to understand, 
It's sacred. God is asking us, listen, to understand this fact that how you manage your own house, yourself, your family, your flock, as Paul's gonna call it in just a second, it's called to be sacred. It's called to be set apart. It's called to be holy, different. Let me say it like this. Christians should have a sacred stewardship, have a different kind of management than the world does. We should be able to look at a Christian's life and see, well, they are responsible managers of what God has given to them because they don't own it, he does, and they're running it, watch this, according to the laws of his house. That's a sacred stewardship. So when you put these two together, here's the tagline we have for the series. Then we're gonna jump into Acts 20. Caring for what God has entrusted to us. Sacred stewardship is caring for what God has entrusted to us. I don't know if we understand this, and I know I didn't fully understand this even before my sabbatical. I didn't fully understand that God had entrusted me with a soul. You need to understand something. There was a time when your soul didn't exist. There was a time when your soul didn't exist. But now, listen to this, there will never be a time that your soul doesn't exist. Your soul will exist forever. And as the great theologian in the movie Sandlot said, forever. Your soul exists forever. And you're the steward of it. You're the steward of your own. God entrusted you with breath, with the soul. In fact, after this series, we're gonna jump into the book of Ephesians because I'm really excited about one because I asked my daughter at the beginning of the sabbatical, hey, what book do you want me to teach on next? She said, Ephesians, I really like Ephesians. Like I love Ephesians too. But what's really cool is the verse that you're gonna see in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the structure of that verse sets up the entire structure of the book of Ephesians. And so we're gonna see it in this series, but then we're gonna really dig into it as we dig into that book. And I'll explain more about that when we get there. But in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, the Bible says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, best two words in the Bible, but God made you alive together with Christ Jesus. And then, that was like verse six, and then in verse 10, it says, you are his masterpiece. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. My friends, you're a steward of the work that God did in you. See, this is sacred. Now, what I want you to see in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 27, and I'm not gonna break down every part of this 
verse like I would normally would just because we don't have time, all right? But I want you to listen to this before we get to verse 28 because this is Paul talking. Now, if you know anything about the structure of Acts, Paul doesn't get saved until a little bit later because he used to be Saul and he was killing Christians. In fact, the very first Christian that was stoned, the text says Saul was there. And so Jesus decided to save a stoner. And I really wish that he would save some stoners today. I mean, I went to Colorado one week, California. I've never smelled so much weed in my life. Good Lord. But he saved a guy that was stoning Christians. And then made him a guy that was making Christians. That was being used by God to make people alive. Don't you think that guy thought about his like, oh, I don't want to mess this up. That's why I want you to listen to how he talks. Now, this is on his third missionary journey. He's already planted, and here's what's really cool. This text references Ephesus. So he's already planted the church in Ephesus, and now he's bringing together the Ephesian elders, and he's giving them some instructions because he's not gonna see them anymore, which means he has to write the letter to the Ephesians later because he's not seeing them, right? So that's why we're gonna dig into that letter. But I want you to listen to how he talks, and then we'll end looking at the instruction that he gave. Verse 17. It says, now from Miletus, which was a little island off the west coast of Ephesus, which is today modern-day Turkey. So it's on the west coast of Turkey, which you can Google it. It's still there. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the day that I first set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Remember, Paul is Jewish and he used to be on the Jewish team of those who were killing Christians. Now he got saved and he's on the other team. Now they hate him. This would be like, we're getting into college football, right? This would be like you grew up a part of one team, and now you have switched sides to the other team. Do you think your old team's gonna be mad at you? Yeah, so now they're trying to do to Paul what Paul used to do with them, which was kill Christians. Now, he goes on. How I did not shrink from you, shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public to, uh, and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what's amazing. Paul lived among them for almost three years. He lived among the church in Ephesus. And Acts 18 and 19 tells us, because he lands there, there's no believers there. They haven't been baptized yet. They had just heard about John. They didn't know about Jesus. And then subsequently the Holy Spirit. And so he testifies to them. The Holy Spirit comes. And then people start getting saved in Ephesus. And so Paul plants a church there, which is what happens when you just keep preaching the gospel. People get saved, a church forms. And he ministered there for almost three years. Now, later after this, he's going to send Timothy to be the pastor there in about 10 years after this letter. And here's what's really cool to me. After Timothy, the apostle John. 
from the Gospel of John goes, and he is then the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So that's a connection to it too. But before we get to that, Paul's instructing them. He's saying, first, you know how I lived. Now think about this. Paul's looking back on the last three years of his life and he's saying, you know how I lived among you. And then he gives some details. I lived with humility. So Paul was not an arrogant guy. He served. But then listen to these words. He also says, and with tears. So not only did he serve humbly, he was emotionally healthy. Bro wasn't afraid to cry. He gave them an example of humility and healthiness. And then he says, and with trials. Here's what's crazy. Paul did all that while people are plotting to kill him. Now, let, let me just take a, this is rhetorical. But it was a little over three years ago that our economy shut down in COVID. So let me ask you this question. Could you, with integrity, write a letter and say this? You know how I lived over the last three years. You know how I lived with humility and with emotional healthiness. You saw how I posted. You watched my social media feeds. You saw how I interacted. Even in the midst of trials. Anybody here write that letter with integrity? Here's what I'm saying. Anybody here can write the letter, you saw how I lived the last three years and emulate that. Live like that. I don't know if any of us, myself included, could say that with integrity. Because there were some times I didn't operate with humility. There were some, definitely some times I didn't operate with healthiness. Hence one of the reasons why I even needed to be on sabbatical, right? To realign my life. But that's how Paul lived. Now he goes on, verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. I love that word. I'll explain more in just a second. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's what Paul just said. I'm going to Jerusalem. If you know anything about the structure of the New Testament, Paul was raising money for the saints in Jerusalem. The reason why, because if you read Acts chapter two, in Jerusalem, all the saints gave all their money away. And the reason why they gave their money away because they thought Jesus was coming back like next Friday. So they gave all their money away. Like Jesus is coming back. And I'm not saying that their heart wasn't right. Their heart was right because like Jesus is coming back, but they weren't great stewards. And we all read Acts 2 and like, oh, they were together and shared everything they had. Yeah, that is great, but that doesn't give reason to be stupid. So now Paul is having to go to all these churches and raise money for the saints in Jerusalem because they broke, because they gave it all away. What you see the church caring for the church, but I'm, I'm just making a principle here that sometimes people blame the Lord for their own bad stewardship. 
Because God gave you a brain. He gave you wisdom. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is collecting money and he talks about this specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which people like to use as a means to actually go against the tithe. But you need to understand something in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Paul's not talking about the tithe. He's talking about offerings. That's a whole different thing. He's raising money for a cause. It'd be like us giving money for give a kid a chance or church planting. That's a completely different thing than caring for your local church, which always amazes me how people will use the Bible as an excuse to become bad stewards. I don't get it. But Paul says, I'm constrained by the spirit. What does that word mean? It means I'm bound, I'm obligated. He's saying, I go now where the spirit tells me. And he says, I don't know what's awaiting me, but the spirit did tell me that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, that verse flies in the face of Jeremiah 29, 11. Which you've been around here. I like to joke. Everybody loves that verse. And I'm not saying it's not a verse that you shouldn't like. What I'm saying though is people take that verse out of context and then use it. It's like God has a plan to prosper my life. Well, what if prosperity for you actually leads to physical imprisonment? Because God watches, God wants your soul to prosper. It's like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> People like to use these verses. As, and this is what I'm saying. Listen to me. When you are stewarding your own soul, when you are stewarding, we're going to see in, your, in a second, your salvation, that is going to mean Trials. And I think one of the things that we've actually hurt in American Christianity is we confuse material prosperity with spiritual prosperity. And we think in order for God to prosper us, he has to prosper us in every area. And so we wrongly think that it was just the devil that led us to that. Or it was the devil that brought that trial in your life. But if you read the book of Job, no trial comes into your life that didn't pass through the hands of God. Satan is on a leash, and that should be good news to you, but I need you to understand something. Sometimes the will of God is to put you into a place where you've got nothing else but God. And I'm saying that because as American Christians, we just don't like these verses, right? We're like, where is Americanized 2 verse 13 about the American dream in this book, right? It ain't there, bro. Because you need to understand, God has a greater economy. So what if it is the will of the Lord for our economy to crash because when our economy crashes, it actually opens the eyes of people and they are now more receptive to God's economy. See what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's wrong to be blessed. I'm not saying it's wrong to have financial blessings. No, 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 no. The Lord is down with that. But what I'm saying is 
You will start to misunderstand the sacredness of your stewardship if you think that your life is always gonna be up and to the right. And that somehow God is doing, this is what the Bible says, brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when trials come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. See, Paul says, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I do know imprisonment's coming. And I can just see Paul like saying it with a smile on his face. Imprisonment awaits me. But look at verse 24. See, here's the key. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only if I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, I don't really like this translation. I'm not saying that in an arrogant way, but in our modern ears, what we just heard Paul say It's like Paul has a negative self-image. When he says, I do not account my life of any value. This is not Paul saying, oh, I don't matter. My life has no intrinsic worth. That's not what he's saying. This is not Paul giving license to say, you know what? All that matters is if I preach the gospel, I don't have to take care of myself. No, Paul says later, He actually buffets his own body. He disciplines his own body so that he might not disqualify himself. So you can't just take one verse out of context. And the reason I don't like this translation is because of the word value. Here's what's interesting. This word here, value in the Greek, here's your tie into the gospel of John. It's the Greek word logos or logos. Now, if you remember from the Gospel of John. That's what chapter one, and really the whole book is about. In the beginning was the word. And the word there for word is this same Greek word, logos. And if you can think back, maybe not to February of 2021, because you may not even have been here. You may not even been alive then. But maybe you can think back to May 21st, the last message that I preached before my sabbatical. We went back and looked at kind of a summary of the gospel of John, and here's what it was. The word logos means this. It's a philosophical term. It's a Greek philosophical term. And again, if you know anything about history, a lot of our philosophy in philosophy departments comes from ancient Greek thought, from guys like Aristotle and Plato and that. And And John was writing primarily to a Greek-dominated thought culture. Because the word logos was this, and this is the definition I gave you then. It's the one thing that defines and gives meaning to every other thing. That's the word logos. So I think a better way to read verse 24, here's what Paul says. I do not account my life to be the logos. Here's what Paul's saying. My life is not the one thing that defines and gives meaning to everything else in my life. See, he uses the word account, which is an accounting term. And those of you that are accountants, you know the accepted rules of accounting, right? You have to balance it. You have to account for things. You're placing value on things. You're saying this matches with this. And if there's one thing that you don't want in an account of is creativity. 
right? You don't want an accountant getting creative with your books because that leads to imprisonment, which wouldn't be led by the Holy Spirit, all right? Be led by bad stewardship. This, I mean, we see this all the time. So all Paul's talking about here, listen, listen. Paul's not saying that he is really negative on himself. He's, he's real, and some of y'all are weird like this. Like, it's not a good sermon unless you feel real guilty. Like, unless you just leave here feeling like a piece of trash, then that was not a good sermon. Some of y'all are so messed up in your theology, you need someone to yell at you and tell you how bad you are for you to feel normal. Do you understand how weird that is? And I'm sorry, because you may have grown up with abusive churches and abusive pastors, that that's what they did. Turn or burn, right? Like, they just yelled and screamed at you, and you're like, I don't know, but I got saved 12,000 times. Right? That's not what Paul's doing here. He is simply, watch this, accounting correctly. He's saying, Jesus is the one thing that defines and gives meaning to everything else in my life. When I take account, when I look at the balance sheet of my life, all I see is debts that I have made. But over here, all I see is grace that he has made. And this grace cancels out that debt because this grace took on that debt. You see what I'm saying? So Paul's not downing himself, but what he's saying is the one thing that gives life and meaning to his life, watch this, is not his self. Which if there is one message that I could tell to our culture today, it would be that. Because what we believe in our culture today is not that truth is out there, but it's in here. Not that truth is to be discovered, it's to be created. And here's what you need to understand. When you start creating your, this is when people say, my truth, you understand what you're doing? You are now operating like an owner, not a steward. Because it's not your house. It's not your body. It's not, did you make it? No. Your parents made it, which I get as a gross thought, but, <laughs> but who made them? And let's trace it all the way back to who made the first man and woman, God. So Paul is simply saying, I'm not an owner of my life, I'm a steward of it, which is why he says what he says next. When he says, I just want to finish my course, watch this, that I received. See, that word receiving is about, he didn't say that I achieved. He didn't achieve nothing. He received it. Now let's go, because again, I gotta hurry. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So Paul's saying, I don't account my life as valuable, it's Jesus, and I'm doing what he's called me to do. And here's what's crazy. 
What he's calling me to do is to go here and keep preaching, which means I won't see you anymore. And later in the text, it says they cried because Paul said, I won't see you anymore. How could Paul make decisions, watch this, that led to pain in his own life, imprisonment, and led, from, led to relational separation from those he loved? Because his life belonged to Jesus. He said, I've, I've accounted it, man. Jesus is the one thing, so I gotta go where Jesus calls me to go, which at this point means it's calling me away from you. But Paul understood something about stewardship that we need to understand, which gets to verse 28. Here is the instruction that he gives them. So he's told you about his life. Here's the instruction. Now, I'm just gonna tease it this week, and we'll dig more into this next week. But listen to what he tells them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's the instruction. That's my life verse. Acts 20, 28. Now it's my life verse because it's specifically speaking to elders or pastors in the church of Ephesus. So this is very personal to me because I'm an elder and pastor in our church. We believe that the pastors are the elders of the church. Now we still have a board because we're a nonprofit. We have to in America. And those are made up of two of our pastors and then guys within our church. But you need to understand something. The responsibility for stewarding this flock, this family belongs to the pastors, the elders, the ones who preach and teach. And he's saying to them, hey, I planted this church in Ephesus, but now you're a steward of it. And there's something that you got to do. There's one command in this verse, and it's pay careful attention. And it's written in the Greek mood that's called the imperative. But before I get to that, I'm actually going to end with that. As I said earlier, you actually have to read this verse from the end to the beginning in order to understand it correctly. Because Paul says, you have to pay careful attention first to yourselves and to the flock. And then he says two things. Because the Holy Spirit made you the overseer of it. And before that, Jesus purchased it with his own blood. Now, these two verbs in the Greek are what's called the indicative. Now, again, we'll get into this more next week. But the imperative and the indicative, two moods in the Greek are so important. Here's the way you can think about it. The imperative is the command. This is what you are to do. The indicative is what's already been done. Now, the entire New Testament structure, in fact, the entire basis of Christianity is the indicative, what has been done, precedes the imperative, which means what you are to do. Watch this. So you're only to do something in light of what's already been done. And you need to understand, 
That's what makes Christianity completely different than any other world religion that has ever existed. Because you want to know what every other world religion does? They flip the order. Here's what you must do in order for something to be done. You must do it. In Islam, it's the five pillars, right? Every religion has a set of rules. And again, it doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't have rules. It does. But here's what you need to understand. What every religion in the world says, you must do this, a set of rules, in order to achieve this relationship. Heaven, God, nirvana, however you want to think about it. But Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's actually like this. The indicatives, you could have never done it. You can't imperative enough. You can't do enough. So guess what? Jesus did it. And how did he do it? With his own blood. If you were here last week, we celebrated the Lord's Supper or communion where we take symbolically the bread and the cup because that's his body that was broken. That's his blood that was shed. Here's what you need to understand, church. You and I are stewards of the salvation that Christ earned. He did it. And these two verbs, I'm gonna give them to you. I have them here on the screen. These two verbs, I'm gonna break them down for you. First one says he obtained. He obtained. Here's what it means. To procure, to obtain for oneself. I love this. To acquire possession of something with considerable effort. Like it was hard What was the effort that Jesus put forward to acquire you? First, he lived a sinless, perfect life for 33 years, and then he died a sinner's death. He went through considerable effort to obtain you. Look at this. To acquire, to achieve, to win. You want to know what the win was for Jesus? We talk a lot about in our society, I want to know how to win. What do I need to do to succeed? You want to know what the win was for Jesus? It was you. You. Let me go a step further. It wasn't just you for your sake. It was you for your father's sake. It was getting you and I back to our maker. Because God wanted his kids back. Just like any good parent does. He obtained you and I by his own blood. Now that alone would be enough. But there's a second word that Paul uses here to these elders. He's like, listen, first Jesus obtained you, but then he says the Holy Spirit made you. So let me give you this verse, this verb, made. It's to appoint, to a duty, to assign a duty, responsibility, or obligation to someone, to assign someone to a particular task, function, or role. See, here's what he was telling these Ephesian elders. Listen, Jesus bought you. He obtained you by his blood, and the Holy Spirit made you. See, church, here's what we got to understand. 
There is no such thing as a self-made man or self-made woman. Hear me roar. That doesn't exist. But here's the good news. (laughs) You can quit trying to make them exist. You can quit trying so hard to achieve and you can receive. You can receive the grace that Jesus purchased for you. And watch this. But you can also receive the power that the Holy Spirit can give you. See, there's two actors here. I mean, there's three when you consider the Father. But in this verse, there's Jesus obtaining, and then there's the Holy Spirit making. See, when Jesus called his first disciples, he says, come follow me, and you will make yourselves fishers of men. That's what he said, wasn't it? Is that what he said? No. Next week, we'll get into how people corrupt the teaching. That's corrupt teaching, all right? I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. No, what did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you. I will make you. If the best two words in the Bible are but you, the four next runner up words are I will make you. See, here's what you need to know, church. Being a steward of God is the best place that you can be because here's what it means. God loved you enough to send his son to die for you and he loved you enough to send the Holy Spirit to make you and that's what you can receive. And you receive the grace of God through the blood of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're gonna, you know what you're gonna do? You're gonna be a good steward, Why? because you recognize what God went through to get you back. See, these two words, he acquired you and appointed you. So let me leave you with this last point and we're done. We have been acquired and appointed. Therefore, we must pay careful attention. We've been acquired by the blood of Jesus. We've been appointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not have been appointed to be the overseer of an entire church because not everybody is appointed to that. But again, we'll get into this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter four, verse 10 says, but Jesus gave to the church apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So your flock may not be this whole church, but guess what? You got a flock. It might be your family. It might be your employees. It might be the kids in your classroom that you went back to this week. And God has appointed you as a missionary to that class because he first acquired you by the blood of Jesus. So listen to me. The reason why this is a sacred stewardship is because we're stewarding the blood of Christ and the appointment of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to live my life according to the rules of the house. Because I understand something. I would have never been in the house if it wasn't for Jesus. 
I would have never been a pastor if it wasn't for the Spirit. It's not because I look good. I mean, look at this. I'm up here sweating like a stuck pig. I mean, I just get excited about this stuff, but, but you understand what I'm saying? I want to live my life in such a way that honors the price that was paid for it. And I want to live my life in such a way that honors the position that I've been given. See, I'm a pastor. You may not be a pastor. We already said that. But I'm also a husband. I'm also a father. And most importantly, I'm a Christian. That was probably one of the funniest things on my sabbatical. People are like, hey, can you pray? I'm like, oh, sorry, you're, you're on sabbatical. I'm like, well, I can pray as a Christian. Like, I don't have to pray as a pastor. I mean, I, I mean, I am a Christian after all, right? Like, I can pray. And if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you've been acquired and appointed to be a steward. And you're going to be held accountable. But maybe there's some of you here today that you haven't understood that Jesus purchased you and bought you and the Holy Spirit can make you. Well, that can be settled today. But maybe there's some of you here today that you know that the Holy Spirit or the, that Jesus purchased you, but you don't know what your appointment is. Well, let's ask. Let's pray. Father, thank you as always for the opportunity we have to gather together to look at your word. God, the gospel, the good news of the grace that you have lavished on us in Jesus is that none of us could measure up. In the accounting sheet, we had way too many debts, way too many sins. But in your divine sovereignty, you put forth Christ who knew no sin. That he might become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He traded out. He took on our debts and gave us his grace. We've been purchased. But God, I know there's some people here today that don't know that or don't believe that. And maybe they've been trying to live their life, but the reason why they keep coming up against a wall is because they kept wrongly thinking they were an owner. They kept trying to create their own truth, but we all know that if we elevate ourself, <laughs> then the core of our existence is ourself, which that is the loneliest place in the world because we were made for relationship. And so God, I pray right now for anybody listening or watching who has never trusted in Jesus, never received the grace that Jesus purchased for them on the cross, I pray right now, God, you'd save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you've never trusted in Jesus, today you can receive what he achieved. And you can make Jesus the logos, the one thing that defines everything in your life.
So if that's you, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I'm trusting in Jesus to save me. Please forgive me. I give you my life. Make me alive together with Christ. Thank you for loving me. Now, again, if you're here in one of our physical locations, and if you just pray that with me, I want you to do one thing. Would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Thank you. Within those of you here today, maybe you've trusted God. You've been acquired, but you're not living your life as though you're appointed. See, there is more to life than just receiving the grace of God, being made alive together in Christ. There's also growth. There's also good works that he's prepared for you. There's also a mission that he's called to you. This is why we talk around here a lot. Life on mission. God saved you to be a steward of the calling he has on your life. And we'll talk more about that over the next couple of weeks, what that looks like, how to pay careful attention to yourself in that. But I just want to encourage you today, if you're confused on your assignment, on the appointment that he gave you, ask him. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you. He's the one that makes you. Father, I pray that we would take this stewardship seriously. We would see it as sacred because you saved us and you equipped us. And now by the Spirit, you're empowering us to live life like Paul, to live life as though Jesus is the one thing that defines and gives meaning to everything, to live our life with a sense of mission, even though that may mean that's gonna lead to hardships and trials. God, we wanna live life like that because we wanna be good stewards of your house, which is our soul. We ask that you grant us this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.